good? Can you hear me okay? There we go. Hey, if you have a, a moment, whether this is your church home or you are a guest with us, uh, first, I am just grateful that you're here with us this morning, but there is a Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you, and we would really appreciate it if you'd grab that card uh, and just take a moment to fill that card out. Let us know that you are here. If you've got any prayer concerns, anything we can be doing for you, uh, we would appreciate that. Now, if you're here with us as a guest, this is a very unique Sunday morning. Our worship minister, Ben, uh, ben Faust, actually graduated from college this morning. I was going to put a picture up uh, and make fun of him, but I decided not to. Uh, he took a, picture, a graduation picture with his puppy. He brought his dog to his college graduation. Um, but uh, what's unique about this morning is that in, while he's out, uh, he invited this uh, worship team of high school students from multiple churches. So what's really neat is that everybody that was leading us this morning, including the student that did the welcome, they're all in high school. And they all come from multiple churches. And here's what I really appreciate about this. This gets me kind of excited. Uh, this worship team was formed not because some youth minister planted an idea in some kid's head, not because some adult leaders set aside some time and began to invest in This is the, the entire uh, thing, this entire worship team, the entire idea came from the students. They began to play worship music at their youth groups. They began to have a passion for it. They wanted to see the churches united, and so they just took it into their own hands. Uh, and I love that. That gets me excited about the future. You've got young kids, high school age, in a country that can distract them so greatly. And instead, they're saying, let's dream for God's kingdom. And uh, they, they form this with a bunch of different churches. That's pretty neat. A uh, pretty cool thing to see what that could, what that could bring, what, how God's going to bless that. And he blessed us this morning with it. So pretty excited about it. Speaking of students, I uh, want to remind you of the banquets tonight. And we're excited for that. If you heard that testimony this morning. Um, man, it's powerful what, what your giving and your generosity can do for these kids. And uh, one other opportunity for you. Um, we're a church. We gather together. We don't do this so we, we are coming to be consumers. We're coming to be givers, and we're coming to serve. Um, and we want to be upfront about that. One of the ways we would love for you to serve is we have this really neat event we do every year called Justin's Run for Hope. And we partner with a really special family from our church uh, that endured a tragedy. Um, and instead of uh, allowing that tragedy uh, to stay there, they've, they've allowed Christ to redeem it, and they've included this message, I mean, all over the world. There's, there's going to be people, you understand, when you come to serve at Justin's Run for Hope, there are people participating in this run all over the world. This isn't just happening here at New Hope, but those who do run at New Hope need you to serve them, and we have a lot of availability for you to serve, and you don't have to run to serve, just so you're aware. If you're like me, you know that people put those stickers on their car, like, uh, what, like when they run a marathon, 26.2, I put 0.0. .0. I don't run. I'm allergic to it. <laughs> but, but we do need your help, and so there's a couple ways that you can get involved. Um, I would love for you to stop at the Welcome Center. Even if you're like, I don't know that we're going to get involved, here's the challenge. Grab something that has the logo on it, put it on your refrigerator, and just pray. Like, God, if you want us to get involved, we will. Check out the website. Call the church office, and they're going to get you connected in multiple ways where you can serve. Come out and uh, engage with our community and just serve as many people as you can uh, that Saturday. We would love to have you. So, hey, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn on your device or grab the Bible that's in front of you or grab the one that you got from our Lost and Found last week that's now your new Bible. Uh, we would love for you to turn to Mark chapter 10. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump in. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And I'm so grateful for that this morning. God, as we gather this morning, we want to hear from you, not, not from me. 
So would you speak clearly to us? Would you challenge us? This is a hard text, uh, but it challenges us in so many healthy ways. And so, God, would you, through the work of your spirit in this place today, allow us to leave here different than when we arrived? And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. While you're turning there, I'm filling you in on something here. I, I, uh, when I first uh, began attending New Hope back in the, the fall of 2008, um, uh, we, we actually started attending church here, my wife and I, uh, because of some financial hardship, believe it or not. Um, so I'll explain it this way. Uh, we had just uh, welcomed our first child, Caleb, and we were both graduate students. And we had moved to Lincoln, Illinois, and um, we were doing our best to make it work, okay? As new parents, full-time graduate students, I was uh, substitute teaching. Any day I wasn't in class, I was going and taking substitute teaching jobs in the local schools. And on the weekends, I'd preach at any church that would have me. And so we were, like, oftentimes taking our newborn and going to all these different churches all around Illinois, uh, just to make ends meet. And, and over time, we, ju- we just kind of learned we're not making this work. Uh, it's just too tight. Well, we weren't the only ones that noticed. Her parents noticed. <laughs> and so they extended this invitation. They said, hey, why don't you come and, uh, and live with us and finish school? And we'll just we'll help out that way. And so th- they extended this generosity. You know, the, the, it was a win for them, too. Put up with the son-in-law. You get the, the, your daughter and your grandchild to come. Uh, and so that, that was a good thing. Um, and so we came, and we were living with them when we began attending here. As we attended here, I got involved in volunteering and got invited to come into a couple different elders meetings. And I'll never forget one elders meeting in particular. Um, I got to sit in and, you know, I'm nervous, like a young kid sitting with all these guys. And everybody leaves and there's one elder left in the room. And uh, he, he says, hey, hold on. And, and so I stayed back and he said, how are you doing? Like, how are you really doing? I mean, it's got to be tough, honestly, on your confidence level. I mean, you're moving over here. You're, things are tight financially. You're full-time grad, so you just welcomed your first kid, and, and now you're, you're living with your in-laws. Uh, not knowing that living with my in-laws for us is like the ultimate blessing. I get the joke, but it doesn't apply to us. <laughs> and so he said, how are you really doing? And then he did something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. He pulled out his checkbook. Like peop- young people, there are these pieces of paper you fill out and... Uh, <laughs> They represent your money. <laughs> so he, pu- he pulled out a checkbook, and he put it on the table, and he said, hey, uh, give me a number. I was like, what do you mean? He said, give me a number. How can my family bless yours? Just what do you need? Any number. And I'll never forget it. It's one of the first times I just thought, what is, what, first of all, I thought, what is going on? And he was just like, hey, he wasn't even thinking. It was like second nature, just not even thinking about it. Here. I just want to bless you. If we see a need, we're going to meet a need. That's the way our family works. So that act of generosity, both my in-laws saying, hey, come and stay with us while you finish school, and this elder saying, hey, just, just give me a number, changed me, began to shape how I viewed what the Bible calls us to when it comes to generosity. It just began to really rock me. And today, the passage that we're going to be dealing with is one that a lot of times preachers are a little nervous about preaching about because we're going to talk about money. But this passage is about so much more than that. And so in Mark chapter 10, as we continue our series, we're going to pick up an exchange that Jesus has with this young man who has some really interesting questions. What we're going to do today is we're just going to walk through this encounter slowly. And if you're new around here, that's typically how we like to walk through the Bible when we preach. We just want to grab a book of the Bible and go through it. And we want to look at different verses and see what is God trying to say to us. So today, Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus and his disciples are traveling, a man 
ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This passage is probably headed rich young ruler or rich young man or a variety of different things. It is pretty fascinating to me that only Matthew calls him young and Luke is the one that refers to him as a ruler. Mark does focus on the man's wealth, but he doesn't reveal that until later on in the story. At this point, without the heading, we don't know what's going on here. All we know is that this young man comes running up to him and he runs, which was unbecoming of a Jewish man in that culture, and he kneels before Jesus, which is a, a, a gesture of reverence. This is usually what a slave or a servant would do. This shows respect for Jesus and urgency. He's desperate. And he's been wrestling with this question. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a question like this man has. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question is one that was keeping him up at night. This is a sincere question. A lot of people might question that, but the, the way Jesus interacts with them later on, we can see that this question is one that is very sincere. This young man wants to know, I've done everything I can do, and I can't sleep at night because I want to know how can I get this thing in my life secure, this thing I'm uncertain about. Maybe you're like that. There have been many nights, to be transparent with you, where I have stayed up late at night. I'll lay down thinking today was a good day, and then the thoughts flood in as I lay in my bed. And I begin to worry about this or that. I begin to think about, okay, this bill or that bill or this to-do list or that to-do list. And these questions begin to rack my brain. And then the longer I dwell on those, the deeper the questions get and some deeper questions about what kind of legacy am I leaving? What kind of dad have I been? What kind of husband am I being? Where's the state of my marriage? Where's the state of my friendships? I haven't talked to that person in so long. I really need to get in touch with them. And all of a sudden, I'm up late at night and I'm really bothered by these questions and I need an answer to these questions. This is how I see this young man desperate. And his question is about salvation. He's asking about, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I, I, I don't have that security yet. I think there's something missing. No matter how hard I try, I still feel something's not quite right. Look at how this conversation goes. Jesus responds to him in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. In verse 20, the man responds to him, Teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Now, Jesus is not saying to this young man uh, that he's not good. He's not, uh, he is not arguing his own deity. He's simply meeting this guy where he is. And he does it. He's so brilliant. He does this in such an interesting way. But he wants to meet this guy. He's not going to intellectually spar with him. And we know that because of the way that Jesus responds to him. He's not out to prove him wrong. Jesus isn't under the impression he's being tricked. He's simply listening to this man. This man has a very sincere question. And Jesus wants to answer that question. He wants to meet him right where he's at. He cares about this young man. So he quotes from the Ten Commandments. What I find fascinating about this is he only quotes the commandments that deal with how we relate to other people. In a way, in a loving way, he's setting this man up. And Jesus knows where he wants this conversation to go, and he's setting the guy up because he knows the guy's heart. And so he starts to quote from different things, like, hey, it's how you treat your mother and your father, how you treat other people. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't do these things. How you relate to other people really, really matters. And the guy, now look, I'm, I'm, this is my own speculation, but if this were me, as Jesus is saying these things, I'd feel pretty confident. Yeah, okay, I don't steal. I've never killed anybody. And, and, and going through, my, man, my mom and dad and me, we've got a great relationship. Things are going really good. I'm doing all these things. And so the young man says, I've done this, all of this stuff that you're saying. I've, and he says it in a sincere way. I mean, I've been trying all of this since my youth. That word youth, more than likely in the Jewish culture, would have referred to this young man's uh, bar mitzvah, if you will, by the age of 13. 
Since I was young, I've been focused on honoring all of these commandments. I've kept the law ever since I learned it. All these things I've been trying so hard to do with all of my life. And he's so focused on what he's doing. And here's where the challenge comes in for us. You see, before we ever get to the money issue, we're dealing with the morality issue, the, behavior, the religious behavior issue. And this is a problem in our culture as well. Tim Keller is a preacher. He really helped me understand this. He said, this is a picture of our culture. He said, whenever you have some a Christian in our culture that's going to go share the gospel with somebody, so they'll present the gospel message, the good news of Jesus with somebody, a lot of what we get in return is, wait a second, you're telling me that if a really good Buddhist or a really good Muslim doesn't accept Christ, then they're not going to be saved? He points out, and I love this, he says, notice how they never say a really bad Buddhist or a really bad Muslim, a really bad fill-in-the-blank. They never say, but you're telling me that serial killer Buddhist, you're telling me that they're, if, they never say that. It's always good. Why? Because what are they doing? Underneath it all, they're saying this. This is the message that the rich young ruler is believing at this point. You can believe whatever you want to believe. It's the culture we live in. You want to be a Christian? You want all that really matters at the end of the day is whether or not you're a good person. All that really matters at the end of the day is whether or not you behave well and you treat people well. All, all that really matters. So believe whatever you want. As long as you're a good person, you believe whatever you want. And Jesus is cutting this off at the knees. He's saying, no, 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 that is not the way this works. And I'll prove it. Why? Because he says to this guy, he says, do you behave this way? 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 Do you behave this? Yep, I'm good in all these ways. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not good enough. It's a spiritual reality check. Despite having all the right behaviors, what you believe absolutely matters. Where you put your deepest hope absolutely matters. Why? Because this guy, no matter how good he was, couldn't sleep at night. Because there's still something missing. What is it that was missing? On a side note, I have met so many times with different people who have come to me and they've said, look, I think I believe everything you're saying about Jesus. And I sure would like to become a Christian. But I think there's a few things I have to get together in my life. There's a few things I have to figure out in my life. i got to get my life in a way that Jesus would actually be pleased with me. And the way I typically respond to that is just a sincere question. If you could, let's say you could, if you could get everything together in a way that God was pleased with you, why do you need Jesus? Why do you need him? If your behavior could, could please God and you could get it all right, what, what, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he resurrect from the dead? If you can do this within your own power, you don't need him. This is what he's saying to him. If you're capable of doing all of this on your own, what do you need me for? He's, he's trying to teach us something here. That our behavior matters, but it is not all that there is to this. The way we respond to God is important. I mean, this is why self-help sermons, sermons that say, here's how to do this, here's five steps to behaving the right way, are leading us in a dangerous place if they don't include with them. And you're not capable of doing this perfectly. You need Jesus. Look at how Jesus responds to this man saying, I've been doing this, man. I've been putting all my effort into this and I still can't sleep at night. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. If you're someone who highlights or underlines in your Bible, would you do that? Would you circle that loved him or underline that and make that a key point? And I'll more on that in a second. And he says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. One of the names that the Bible gives to Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. I think the reason for this is that Jesus always gets personal. 
He always tends to look at your heart and find the truth about who you really are. And the more time you spend with him, the more he reveals that wound at the center of your soul, the one you've been trying to hide, the one that you've been ashamed of. And his motivation in revealing that, that wound, that thing that is keeping you from him, that thing that's keeping you up at night, the real answer to the real deeper questions in your life, the reason he gets deep like that is because he loves you. It's because he can see in you the thing that is lacking. He can see in you the thing that is keeping you from seeing him clearly. And so what is Jesus saying here? There's no place in the Bible where we're commanded to go into voluntary poverty. There's no place where he commands us to do that, to give away everything. Jesus isn't referencing a specific command or a law for this guy. This is why I think he's being a wonderful counselor in this moment. Notice he doesn't quote scripture, does he? Because it's not anywhere in the Bible. Instead, what he's doing is he's going after this particular man in this particular moment because there's this particular issue that's keeping him from seeing the Lord. Yes, this has to do with money, but it's not. This passage is about so much more than that. This guy has something he's holding on to while trying his best to, to do everything else the way he's supposed to do it. And he's holding on to this money. And he's holding on to his love for money and his security that he's placing in money. And Jesus can see it clearly. And like a really good counselor, he's just, let's, let's unearth some layers here. Yeah, good, you behave really well. That's okay. You're doing awesome. You're awesome. But there's this thing that, that, that you're lacking. Now, this is the point where many of us might check out. Like, well, this guy deals with money and that's not my issue because I clearly don't have any. Uh, and you start to think, like, I don't, I don't have money, so money's not the issue for me. Let me remind you where you're si sitting right now. In the wealthiest country in the world. In a climate-controlled room. In a padded seat. Fully clothed. With plans where your next meal is coming from. This man's issue is our issue. Very clearly. Every one of us. If you can hear my voice, this is our issue. You see, it's not about how much money you have. It's about the place that money takes in your heart. It could be the deep love you have for getting more money, the worry and anxiety that money brings to your heart, the way it keeps you up at night. It could be that you don't feel like you have enough. You don't feel like you make enough and you need to make more. You don't feel secure. You don't feel comfortable. And it's because money is blocking you from seeing God. Now, notice that this guy, that Jesus does not say to this man, he does not say, just give away all your money. He, that's not it. He says, give away all your money and then come and follow me. And they go hand in hand. It's extremely important because what Jesus is trying to say to this man is this. I want you to see that if you have me, you have everything that you could ever need. I think about it this way. This helped me understand it. Let's say this guy would have said yes. Now, we know the end of the story. He says no. But let's just say he would have said yes. For all we know, for all we know, God... Jesus would have responded to him the same way that God responded to Abraham on the mountain with Isaac. Just think about it this way. You remember that story? Abraham had waited so long for a son. It became the consuming part of his heart. It drove everything he was doing. He wanted a son, and God blessed him with a son, Isaac. And then God puts a test on him, and God says to him, I want you to sacrifice that son. And you're thinking, what in the world? There is nowhere in the Bible where child sacrifice is commanded. Nowhere where we're told to sacrifice children. And God, what are you doing in this moment? And so he takes him up on the mountain. He puts him on the altar and he's getting ready to do this. And he's thinking to himself, I'm certain. God, you, this, it doesn't say this anywhere in the Bible. I don't understand. There's nowhere in the Bible where you command people to do this. I don't understand this, but because you said so, I'll do it. And then God stops and he says, no, 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 you don't have to do it. Because it was never about Isaac. It was always about your heart. So I've provided that sacrifice. Who's to say that in this moment, if this young man would have said, 
There's nowhere in the Bible where you tell me to give away all my money and go into voluntary poverty. There's nowhere in the Bible where you tell us to do that. But if you're saying it, I'll do it. That Jesus wouldn't have stopped him and said, you don't have to do it. It was never about the money. It's about your heart. It's about whether or not I've got your heart. It's about whether or not you come to understand that I am all that you need. You see, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's addressing this control that money has on this man's heart. It's a control that many of us have. You know, understand when money is your issue, it's very hard to see. Greed is a silent killer. It is very difficult for us to see it. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't have an issue with that, you probably have an issue with it. The moment we think we don't have that issue, we probably have that issue, and we have to really do some self-checking. We have to really look deep into our hearts and come to understand, does this have a grip on my heart? And that's what this man does. And look at verse 22. When he really understood what Jesus was calling him to do, he didn't quite see why he was disheartened by this. And he went away sorrowful. He left sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. He couldn't seem to let it go. But before we judge, could you? I mean, could you do it? Be hard. Be really, really difficult. There's this interesting phrase um, that's used a couple times in the Psalms. In Psalm 22, the phrase, the psalmist says this, Deliver my precious life from the power of the dogs. A little bit later in the Psalms, he writes, Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Does that phrase, my precious, ring any bells with anybody? You might remember the Lord of the Rings, this guy. Sorry, kids, if it scares you. It is creepy. This is Gollum, Schmeagel, if you're a fan of the movies. The word Gollum appears in the Hebrew in your Old Testament one time in the Bible. It appears in Psalm 139, and it describes an unformed body. See, this little word Gollum in Hebrew became known in the Middle Ages as a character for a figure in Jewish folklore. kind of meant somebody who lived with a grudge, somebody who was resentful and spiteful. It really represented this idea of a soulless slave. This is why Tolkien chose the word to name this character. And if you, if you know, uh, they took it down quick, huh? They're scared of it too. I get it. I get it. This is what Professor Tom Shipley calls a psychic, psychic amplifier. And if you remember in the movie, that, that precious ring, all he wanted was that ring, and he was captivated by it. It became an idol, idol to him. And Tom Shipley says this is a psychic amplifier, which means it amplifies things. It takes a desire, a simple desire that we have, and it turns it into an obsession. And once we become obsessed with it, our hearts are more susceptible to become slaves to it. And at that point, we're an, it's an idol. We are slaves to an idol. It has complete and total control over us. And this is what's going on with this man. A simple desire to make more money to provide for his family. A simple desire to save for retirement. A simple desire to make sure that he could live somewhat of a comfortable life and have just at least a little bit to account for all of his hard work. A simple desire became an obsession. And that obsession became his precious. And then he became a slave to having more and having enough and having more and having enough and having more and having enough. And sure, maybe he's generous along the way, but there's something that's got a hold of his heart. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, you've done a lot really good. You can take the picture down now. You've done a lot really, really well. But something's got a hold of your heart and you can't see it. And I'm a wonderful counselor and I'm going to help you see it. And he peels back the layers. And he says, let me reveal it to you. Go give away everything that you have. Give it all away. The man can't seem to do it. Why? Because he'd lost sight of the biblical rule. Freely you've received, freely you give. 
I mean, what in the world do I have in my life, honestly, that God didn't give me? What do I have? God has given me every relationship I have. God has given me the mind to think the way I do. God has given me the experiences that have taught me valuable lessons like work ethic and saving. God has given you certain gifts and talents and abilities to think the way you do, to act the way you do, to to achieve the things that you've achieved. Every single thing is a gift from him. It's when we lose sight of that that we lose our freedom. Verse 23, and Jesus, now he's going to zero in. Looking around, he said to his disciples, how difficult it'll be. Now they got a visual of this, this man walking away, and Jesus says these words, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know that there's some people that do some really, in my opinion, silly things with this, this, uh, these verses. Some people will explain to you that, well, the word for needle is actually not talking about a literal needle, but it's talking about this, this hallway that led to this doorway that it would be really, really hard for a camel to get through, but not impossible. Or they'll say, hey, the, the Hebrew word or the Greek word for camel is a lot like uh, the same word for rope, which is camelos. And so obviously some scribe somewhere made an error. And while it would be impossible to get through the eye of a, a needle, if the rope's big enough, not, you know, it's hard, but not impossible. I think it's all goofy. I think it is. I think everyone who's trying their best to explain this away is trying to get out from underneath the weight of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is describing something that's impossible. It's absolutely and completely impossible. And this is why the disciples are exceedingly astonished at what Jesus said. They're blown away. How in the world, how in the world could you just say what you said? That's what they're thinking in their head. And they're thinking that way because in Jewish culture, money was a sign of favor. I mean, if you were financially well off, God was pleased with you. And if you were not financially well off, God was not pleased with you. That if you were financially well off, life has gone your way. And if you're not financially well off, then life obviously hasn't gone your way. And there's something you've been doing wrong. And you need to get it in check. You notice how Job in the Old Testament, his friends treated him when he lost everything. Oh, you've done something wrong. God must be mad at you. And so to think, man, how in the world could that not be the case? And what Jesus is teaching here is it, it is absolutely impossible for you to serve two masters. It's impossible for money to have a hold of your heart and your heart to be free and open to God. It's not possible. He's not saying it's like really highly unlikely. He's saying it's not possible for you to have a deep love for money and a deep love for God at the same time. Uh, There's a light in the mood a little bit here. There's a story of a a rich guy that stood up in church to account for how God had really taken care of him. And he he got up in front of the church. He stood up like one of you would here. Don't. Uh, But if one of you did and he began to tell Hey, my very first job, I got my very first paycheck, and I was in church, and the preacher was preaching. I just felt like God was telling me, man, you better give it all. Just put that paycheck in the, in the plate when the plate is passed. And he thought, I can't do that. I really can't do that. And the more the service went on, he just felt compelled. And so he we went ahead and did it. When the plate came, he signed the check over to the church. He put his entire first paycheck in the plate. He's telling the entire church this. And he said, from that day on, God has blessed me unbelievably. When I was willing to give everything to God, He blessed me unbelievably. I have made so much. I am in such a good place financially. I provided for my family, my children's children. Everything is awesome. Then he sat down and this old lady sitting behind him tapped him on the shoulder, leaned in close and said, I bet you won't do it again. (laughs) The point is how difficult it is the more we have. How difficult it is to keep our hearts. It's easy when it's your first paycheck. It's chump change. What about now? 
It's a lot harder when money gets its grip around our heart. And this is what Jesus was teaching. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. This is why. This is what he's saying. Because when the wonderful counselor comes and begins to peel the layers back in your heart and reveal how deeply you love your money, you're going to be forced to let it go. And the question is going to be whether or not you can. Whether or not you're able to let it all go. And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be money. It can be anything that's got a grip on your heart that he comes and says, let it go. And it doesn't guarantee he's going to do like he did on that mountain with Abraham and Isaac. You may have to really let it go because it may have too strong a grip on your heart. But God wants your heart to be healthy. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Look, if this guy can't be saved, Jesus, what do you, are you, did you hear what he said he's accomplished since his youth? He's done everything. The things we don't do. Like uh, James and John, they're really close to murdering people all the time. And this guy never does. Like, are you, come on, Jesus, if this guy, he's got it all together. And he's wealthy, which means God really has favor on him. You're telling me he can't be saved. Jesus looked at them, I think you could add, loving them, and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What he's saying is this, you can't save yourself. You can't. You can do all the right things. You can have all the right blessings. And everything can look just perfect. And you can't save yourself. And so one point when it comes to this specific issue of maybe money having a grip on our hearts, and one thing I want to leave you with, and it's just what would it look like if we began to loosen the grip on our own hearts? So let me give you this one application point here. It's generosity is a learned habit. See, when something becomes deeply habitual in me, it becomes like what uh, psychologists would call second nature. I don't think about it. You just kind of do it when things just kind of become... Think about when you learn to tie your shoes. When you learn to tie your shoes... It was hard, right? I've got, you, we've taught our kids how to tie their shoes. It's not always easy. You're learning all these different things on how to tie your shoes. And the first time you accomplish it, what do you want to do? You want to tell the world, I did it. Sound the trumpet. I tied my shoes. It's absolutely incredible. I learned how to do it. Now, if you were to pause and say, Rob, how do you tie your shoes right now? I would have to think about it. I'd have to say, well, I, I cross it over and then I, I put one underneath the other and then I loop it and I swoop it and I pull and uh, I, th I think, yeah, that's, about, that's how you would do it. You would think about it, right? But when it's second nature, you're free to think about other things while you're participating in this. You don't even have to, you don't have to do it. Here's a challenge for you. Today, when you go home, don't do it while I'm talking, but when you go home, I want you to tie your shoes. But I want, instead of you just tying your shoes normally, I want you to do everything that you normally do with your right hand with your left hand. And everything you normally do with your left hand with your right hand. And you're going to learn it's pretty hard. You know why? Because your right hand literally has no idea what your left hand is doing. No idea. It's become second nature to you. And in the same way, right, this is what Jesus teaches us about the grip that money has on our heart. He says, go be generous. Let that be a learned habit to the point where your right hand literally has no idea what your left hand is doing. Kind of like tying shoes. It becomes so second nature that with your generosity, when it comes to money, you're free to think about other things because you aren't tied down by it. It's become, generosity has become a learned habit. It has become second nature in your life. And what's going to happen is the first time that you're generous, you're going to feel heroic. And you're going to want to sound the trumpet. You're going to want to let everybody, ah, I'm generous. But over time, it's becoming second nature to the point you don't even think about it. You just pull out your checkbook and you say, give me a number. How can my family bless yours? It's just second nature. 
over time, the more you give your time, you're going to want to sound the trumpet. The more you serve people, the more you sign up for things like Justin's Run for Hope. And the more you do, the first time you do it, you're going to want the world to know it. You're going to say, yes, I did it. The more you serve people, yes, I did it. You're going to sound the trumpet. Sarah, I, I unloaded the dishwasher. Sound the trumpet. I did it. But over time, over time, it's going to become second nature. And I want to know what would it look like. In the words of Dallas Willard, he says, one of the signs of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that no longer occur to you. What would it look like in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, in this church, in this community, if we had a group of people that said, generosity, that's second nature. We don't think about it. We don't think about it. It's like tying our shoes. What are you talking about? Generosity? No. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's something else where God's looking at you. The wonderful counselor's looking at you, and he's saying, hey, you lack one thing. Give it up and come follow me. The answer to that, it's up to you. Let's pray.